I hate being told not to be angry because anger is an appropriate response mm -hmm. to so much of the injustice that marginalized people face. If you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. Something is really missing if you're not angry. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Jay Smooth, Van Jones, Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine, Throwing Shade, Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin, Politically Reactive, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and Democracy Now! I'm scared. And I'm ashamed. We failed last night. There's no time for euphemisms right now. America chose hate last night. It's not a new kind of hate. It's an all-American kind of hate. It's a hate that we knew was always here, but we wanted to believe it wasn't strong enough to win anymore. And we were wrong. Hate won last night. And let's not beat around the bush. White America chose hate last night. If you saw these numbers in any other category, you wouldn't dance around calling it what it is. So don't dance around this. This is white supremacy. There might be a complex web of reasons why that choice was made. There might be a whole array of ways that people rationalized that choice. But that is the choice that was made. America chose white supremacy last night. Some people want to say it was the last gasp of white supremacy. If that's the case, then it's a hell of a gasp. And I don't know what comes next. I'm not going to stand here and say, we're going to survive. I'm not going to say, we'll be okay. How can I say that to immigrants and Muslims and women who want control of their bodies? How do I say to my family, my family grew up in Schomburg projects with the Central Park Five. How do I look my cousins in the eye knowing that they saw what happened to those boys and that 20 years after the fact, this man was still asking for their blood. How do I look at my family and tell them that's going to be all right? I'm not going to sit here and do that. I don't know that we will survive. I don't know that we'll be okay. But what I know is that we will resist. We come from a tradition of resistance, just as surely as America's history is the story of that hate. It is also the story of our resistance. That's what I know. They want to talk about make America great again. What I know is the only glimpse of greatness this country has ever had, the only glimpse of the ideals this country was founded on that we've ever had is because of our resistance, because we dragged America to it, kicking and screaming. That is our part in this story. And the kickers and screamers won last night. We failed. I don't know what comes next. But I know that we are going to wake up tomorrow and do what we have always done. We will be there for each other. We will support each other. We will defend each other. We will love each other. And we will spend the next four years giving them something to kick and scream about. I love you all, and I'm sorry. People have talked about a miracle. Uh, I'm hearing about a nightmare. 
Uh, it's hard to be a parent tonight for a lot of us. Uh, you tell your kids, don't be a bully. You tell your kids, don't be a bigot. You tell your kids, do your homework and be prepared. And then you have this outcome and you have people putting children to bed tonight. And they, they're afraid of breakfast. They're afraid of how do I explain this to my children? I have Muslim friends who are texting me tonight saying, should I leave the country? I have uh, uh, families of immigrants that are terrified tonight. This was many things. I, 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 this was a rebellion against the elites. True. It was a complete reinvention of, of, of politics and polls. It's true. But it was also something else. We've talked about race. I mean, we've talked about everything but race tonight. We've talked about income. We've talked about class. We've talked about region. We haven't talked about race. This was a white lash. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president in part. And that's the part where the pain comes. And Donald Trump has a responsibility tonight to come out and reassure people that he is going to be the president of all the people who he insulted and offended and, and, and brushed aside. Yeah, when you say you, know, you want to take your country back, you got a lot of people who feel that we're not represented well either. But we don't want to feel that someone has been elected by throwing away some of us to appeal more deeply to others. So this is a, a deeply painful moment tonight. I know it's not just about race. There's more going on than that. But race is here, too. We got to talk about First, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation. Katrina, thanks for joining us on this miserable day. Thank you, John. I think on this morning, it's a gray morning in New York, we grieve. Uh, some of us, even at The Nation, have, been, have wept. Our cover, which we organized this morning, mourn, resist, organize, onwards. Yeah. I mean, we experienced a political earthquake last night. Um, we wake to it this morning. Uh, but Despite that temptation to mourn, uh, we have to organize. We've heard that before in our history. And at The Nation, we also rededicate ourselves to our role as journalists, the principle and conscience. And I think we also, it's incumbent upon us to understand uh, where we are in a cycle of history. You know, we, um, we saw in the Bernie Sanders-Clinton uh, primary that this was an election about change and a revolt in many ways against the political elites. And, of course, we also saw the bigotry, misogyny, racism that Trump incited, his campaign incited. But I think we need to think hard about how we move forward. Remaking our politics and economy is going to depend on a broad coalition, that Obama coalition that did come out yesterday. But it's going to also need to include substantial numbers of racially anxious white working class people. And ignoring their fears or pandering to them, I think, impoverishes all of us. So today we recommit. We know the Democratic Party, as you said, John, is in 
deep disarray. Um, but it means we need to uh, keep fighting for those issues, which were in the most progressive democratic platform in modern history, and to maybe go back to cities and states uh, as we rebuild in order to make sure that vulnerable communities aren't attacked. That's important. And also that issues we care deeply about are lifted up and not by any measure dropped, forgotten. Um, and we have to remember also elections, though they're central, are only the beginning of the contest for power. So we have a lot of work to do. We know that at the nation. And um, we had hoped to celebrate last night and go to work this morning. Instead, we grieved, we mourned last night, and we go back to work this morning. Mourn, resist, organize, and start by protecting vulnerable uh, communities. I think you're absolutely right that the, the uh, white working class that we've heard so much about has made it clear that the status quo is not uh, acceptable to them, that Clintonism, Clintonism is, is finished. And one of our jobs is to help sketch out what the Absolutely. alternative is. And we certainly got a big start with the Bernie Sanders campaign, which the nation proudly endorsed. Yeah, I think one of the roles, John, and you're so right, you've been associated with the nation in extraordinary ways for so many years, is these are times which rip apart the soul, but also rip apart a system. Uh, I don't usually go around Wednesday mornings quoting Antonio Gramsci, but it's a quote I have affection for, which is that, to paraphrase, the old order is disappearing, the new one is not yet born. And in that twilight, that period, it's our role to put forth, uh, to think anew, to be tested by humility, uh, what we thought would happen didn't. The unthinkable, unimaginable became real. But we need to really drive forward new ideas, alternative ideas, as we have throughout our history, and to uh, commit to that in the reporting we do, in the ideas work we do, and uh, the debates we have and will have. Uh, I do think you mentioned Clintonism. I would add to that neoliberalism. Yeah. We have, a, we have a piece. Listen, our former nation intern, Edward Miliband, former head of the labor, leader of the Labor Party, was in our offices last Wednesday. And he hoped we would avoid a Brexit fate. Well, what he witnessed in the U.K. and we're witnessing globally, America is experiencing it's a revolt, as I said, against an establishment of both parties in our country, uh, global trade, tax deals of, by, and for the corporations, of crony capitalism. What Bernie Sanders and I think we and others have to offer and the movements is a progressive, inclusive alternative, call it populism if you want, addressing economic insecurity, inequality, new ways of doing that and not turning on each other, but instead turning toward each other. But we got a lot of work. I mean, these corporate trade deals, I think, played a huge role. John Nichols did a very important cover story for The Nation earlier this year about how trade would play, and you could run it today, I hate to say, but those Midwest Rust Belt states, trade was a proxy for much more in this election, John. It was about cultural issues as well as economic issues. But unless we address it head-on, globalization, how it's ravaged communities, Unless we find a way to fuse the Obama coalition, the rising American electorate, the extraordinary Latino surge that we saw with this working class, white, African-American, Latino, unless we address how we build an inclusive, progressive, democratic populism, not a scapegoating one, and address the future of work. These are issues that Europe is grappling with and that we will be grappling with. The last thing I'd say is this is our opportunity to um, 
think anew about America's engagement with the world. Though Donald Trump sent mixed signals on foreign policy in this election, I will say that his rejection of the kind of American establishment thinking on liberal interventionism, meet neoconism, uh, is something to explore. I worry that he's the lousiest messenger for kind of different engagement with the world. But what his candidacy revealed is I think Americans are weary of war without end, war weary. And we need to seize that opportunity to rebuild what Tom Hayden would have been at the forefront of, which is a peace and justice diplomacy first movement for the 21st century, bringing together young, old, different movements. We need it. We need it enormously. And I think this is an opportunity. Don Gutenplan in his lead editorial for The Nation this morning reminds that in 1952, the original Cold War at its height, I.F. Stone, our former Washington correspondent, challenged his readers to back Ike for peace. Wow. <laughs> I, think it, I think a current crisis demands an equal willingness to seize opportunities as they emerge, though I do think our role will be thinking anew, radical thinking, opposition where we must, proposition where we can. Mourn, resist, organize. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation. Can I say really quickly, I, I think, look, I know everyone's angry, everyone's really upset. Can you, can you just take one day and just be upset? Like, really, this is what I'm going to, I said it at my Aunt Sheila's funeral, I'm going to say it today. This is not a time to be angry or get even or anything. Feel your feelings for a day. And then tomorrow, uh-huh. we fucking fix it. This is this is what I want to say in this. And this is, um, I will not accept anyone saying they're at a loss for words. I won't accept it. Find your words and then get pissed. And then get pissed that this happened and act, I said it before, act like your fucking dog just died. Really have that kind of rage, have that kind of sadness. Because if you don't, this shit will get worse and it will get out of control. I do want to mention a couple of silver lining things. The electoral, this is what I want to say. Love did Trump hate. Mm -hmm. Hillary won the popular vote. Find something in that. Hang on to that knowing that like – I I don't believe – like people – I was just reading so many headlines say like, oh, love didn't win – it did. Yeah. By a couple hundred thousand votes, but it did. Hang on to that. Also, if you look at the electoral map, we were discussing it earlier, and if just millennials had voted, only two states would have been red. This shit is the final death rattle. Look at this as the four years when, if we get through it, that shit is done. That's right. And we start looking at, um, we start looking at Senate races. We start looking at 
flipping the fucking house. We we start working in mid to for midterm elections Which is, tomorrow. And that and by the way, that's two years away. That's in 2018. That's a solid fucking goal to do everything you can to get the right people in. And by the way, that should be easier to try to control because those people live down the street. I would all you know you know what I mean like that's not getting to Donald Trump which is right. this comical block him off at his, that is the power structure that we can Definitely. actually have influence on. I right would now. also say, do not ignore Trump supporters. Do not will them out of your lives. We all, if one out of two people in this country is a Trump supporter, then we all know and maybe even love someone who's a Trump supporter. Tell them how this affected you. Tell them what's on the line for you. Um, I don't believe that half this country is evil. I don't believe that. I think that half this country we know is uneducated and is angry. Um, and, uh, and below that, bigoted. Um, well, but I do think that this is something that, and I, I hate to get all touchy feely about it. These are conversations to be had. I have talked to my parents since this election and told them how I feel and told them what the consequences are with our relationship. If this continues, I've done it and I feel empowered for doing it. If you are in a safe space enough to do something like that, do it. If it is safe for you to talk to someone who voted against your rights, do it. And I think you have a, I mean, your point to your point, like, it is important. Like when my grandpa told me he was voting for Trump, I told him what that meant to me and how that I didn't say you're wrong. You're dumb. I didn't, I didn't use any, I didn't use the word you once. I said, that is, this is how it affects me directly. I know you're worried about your pension. I know you're worried about this stuff. This is the kind of person he is. And when you co-sign Donald on Donald Trump's words and actions, you, you, it, it it hurts me personally. Like right. it, 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 he and Mike Pence and fucking Rance Priebus and all these fucking d- dickheads. They we should start calling him Rance. Rance Priebus, honey. Rinse it out. Rinse it out, honey. Get that rinse. Get that wool light going. <laughs> do not, do not feel defeated. Feel empowered. Start letting us know who we can let other people know about midterm elections. Exactly. Let let us help everybody. Like, let us help you get the word out. We know how many people listen to the show. We know how many people don't agree with the policies that have just been voted into office. We know. And there is power in that. Do not fucking give up. I know that you have had some bad luck before. You've been hurt, you've been cheated, you've been shown the door. I know what it feels like when you can't take it anymore. That's why I'm telling you that if you need a friend, I'm gonna run screaming away from you as fast as I can. You're crazy, and I think you could be dangerous. I'll run screaming. Away from you, that's my plan. You're crazy, and I think it's time that I run screaming away. We're going to talk today about the day after, if you will. Donald Trump is the president elect. It sucks. People are crying at my wife's job. There was a guy on my corner offering free hugs. I took one. And I got some thoughts on this matter. 
But before I say any of them, straight up, I want to say to everybody out there, just be good to yourself. You know, it's times like this where sometimes we make choices that are actually self-destructive because we think the world is so destructive. But this is exactly the moment when you want to do things like get off of Twitter for a week, drink more water, get some exercise, take that free hug, do something for yourself on a very personal basis that you know will make you a little bit more grounded because we're going to need that in the months and years ahead. So I have four thoughts on these elections and I want to lay them out for you. You can like it, dislike it. And then I also have some thoughts that I'm reading with permission from my friend Kianga Yamada Taylor, who's the author of the book From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. So first some Dave Z, then some Kianga Taylor. Always in these discussions, let's start with Howard Zinn, the great historian who said, it matters less who's sitting in the White House than who is sitting in. If you believed that Hillary Clinton was going to deliver this progressive agenda with a Republican Congress independent of mass struggle, you would have been terribly disappointed, as if the last eight years hasn't proved that time and again. Our tasks are in many respects exactly what they would have been if Hillary had beaten Trump. To fight for what we believe in, whether the person in the White House believes it or not, as progressives, as radicals, as socialists, as people who stand in the tradition of rights for all people. Two, the Republican Party won this election precisely because they are such a hot mess and the Democratic Party is not. The Republicans had the privilege of backwardness. They were such a disorganized cluster bleep that they nominated a racist, sexist nativist who railed against every trade deal and against the corruption of Washington, D.C. The party of family values nominated an epic scumbag. The party of the troops nominated someone who didn't know what a gold star family was and mocked POW John McCain. The party of free trade nominated someone who thinks trade deals should be burned. And they were aghast, but had no mechanism to stop him. What Trump saw, either instinctively or not, was that the fundamental dynamic of this election was that eight years of Obama have produced massive gains for Wall Street and massively little trickle down to the rest of this country. There was anger in anyone willing to amplify that anger toward Wall Street, toward immigrants, toward women, toward the blacks, would go far. He saw that, he saw it early, he ran with it. Now Hillary Clinton could not credibly make that argument because she ran explicitly on being third term Barack Obama. And also because quite simply, she doesn't believe it. She is the senator of Goldman Sachs. And here is where we get to the tragedy of this election. And people aren't gonna wanna hear it, but it's the truth. The Democrats had the antidote for Trump in their back pocket. And his name, I'm sorry, it's Bernie Sanders. Bernie would have crushed Trump, crushed him. He would have crushed Trump because his message would have been that same anti-establishment, anti-Wall Street, outsider energy, but without the bigotry. 
If he had run, all those rural areas that came out for Trump in massive numbers would have split the same way they were split in 2008 when, frustrated with Washington, they voted for another outsider named Barack Obama. But the Democratic Party establishment crushed Bernie for having the temerity to challenge Hillary. And that's on them. Four. Yes, so much of Trump's win was animated by sexism, racism, bigotry, even a love of fascism. The KKK is happy right now, and that is devastating. But if we are talking about all 60 million Trump voters, it's simply more complicated than that. There's an expression going around that not everyone who voted for Trump was a bigot, but everyone who is a bigot voted for Trump. And I agree with that. But I want to say something about someone who's my best friend on earth, best friend since we were six years old. His wife is black. He has a biracial daughter. And he was an Obama voter. He moved out of New York City to live in Central Florida. Growing up, this guy marched every year in the Labor Day Parade with his union parents, and he fought the cops after Abner Luima was brutalized by New York City police. And this guy, this best friend of mine, living in Central Florida, voted for Donald Trump. He didn't do it because he liked Trump. He did it because partly he's incredibly isolated, moved out of New York City, lives in the middle of Florida. As he says to me, not a lot of people to talk to, a lot of talk radio to listen to. But through his own thinking and his own isolation, his own reading, he found Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family so unrepentantly disgusting that voting Trump for him was his version of lesser evil voting. I'm horrified that he pulled the lever for that dime store fascist. But I also will continue to talk to him and frankly empathize with why he found the Clinton family so utterly remote from his life and why he, an enthusiastic Obama voter in 2008, found himself feeling so left behind. And you know what? That's also on me for letting him get that isolated. It's on us to turn this situation around. And we don't have to wait four years. That starts today. Okay, maybe it starts tomorrow. Get some rest. Take care of yourself. But it's going to have to start soon. I'd like to read something else. And I read this uh, by my friend Kianga Taylor. She wrote this early on the day after Trump's victory. I don't have any profound insight. I'm pretty stunned and have been since last night. I expected Clinton to win simply because I assumed she would get more votes than the openly racist sexual predator she was running against. But in my opinion, Clinton was never a real alternative. The emergence of Occupy, Black Lives Matter, and 12 million votes for an open socialist, Bernie Sanders, was the canary in the coal mine. The status quo can no longer be presented as the answer to the crises imploding across this country. You cannot glibly campaign on the slogan that America is already great when for so many, it is not. You cannot patronize people with banal promises to create, quote, ladders of opportunities, end quote, when millions of people are drowning in debt, uncertainty, and bitterness. My observation is not intended to dismiss the undeniable reality of racism, xenophobia, hatred, misogyny at the heart of the Trump candidacy, but to reduce this outcome only to that misses, I think, a deeper issue. 
There is intense political polarization in this country. The right found an outlet while the Democratic Party buried Sanders and put forward a candidate that embodied the political establishment, the very phenomenon people were revolting against. Some on the left have talked at length about the desperate need to build and organize an alternative that offers more than, we are not Republicans. The Democratic Party has arrogantly believed that that alone would always be enough, and we are paying the price for it. How much longer can we afford to continue to delay the work of organizing a real alternative to the two-party disaster that is on full display today? It's not an abstraction, but it has to be rooted in the real-life organizing that will be necessary to take on Trump and Trumpism. This is a disaster, but we have no other choice. That's Kianga Taylor, author of Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working past the regular 9 to 5. So if you're still making time-consuming trips to the post office, you need a better way. Try Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, get the postage you need the instant you need it. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. It's quick and easy, and you'll save money with Stamps.com, too. It's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters, plus you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. As a millennial, instead of having a paper route or mowing neighbors' lawns when I was a kid to make extra money, I opened myself an eBay store in the late 90s. And it was great, but it didn't take me long to get tired of all those trips to the post office, so when I found Stamps.com way back then, it was a no-brainer to sign up, and you should too. And now's a great time, because when you sign up for Stamps.com using my promo code BEST, you'll get this special offer. A four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in BEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter BEST. I've been thinking about this a lot, but I keep hearing that you can't be angry when you talk about race in this country. You can't antagonize white people. You have mm-hmm. to tiptoe around because if you antagonize white people, this will happen. And, I, and I've, I've heard people say that before and after this election, the idea of you have to tiptoe around white people's feelings. I, I, I am so furious that it is a problem to say what the problem is, to show emotion, and to expect human decency. If make if making those claims with any passion is a problem, then what are we doing? I mean, have you had to deal with it? Have you been told, tone it down, it's not helping the cause? Like, have you dealt with that? How do you deal with that? Oh, yeah, I deal with that all the time, not only about dealing with race, but dealing with gender, dealing with feminism, dealing with um, LGBT issues. Uh, People always say, you know, that we need to work together. Even last night and today, I've had well-meaning people, but well-meaning white people send me messages and say, you know, we need to 
uh, love trumps hate, which I think is one of the stupidest catchphrases to rise out of this entire, and I'm actually writing about this right now, all the just ridiculous catchphrases that rose out of the campaign. But love doesn't trump hate. It really doesn't. We we have so much evidence, and including <laughs> last night. So stop saying love trumps hate, or they go low, we go high. Uh. Uh, nonsense. And so I hate being told not to be angry, because anger is an appropriate response mm-hmm. to so much of the injustice that marginalized people face. If you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. Something is really missing if you're not angry. And when people are saying angry, don't get angry, what they're really saying is don't make me uncomfortable. Yes. Don't make me have to confront my privilege. Don't make me have to change the comfortable circumstances in my life in order to really create change. It's, you know, actually, the thing that will make me angry the fastest is to tell me not to get angry Mm -hmm. um, or or stay calm. Fuck you. You stay calm. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And I hate the idea that, no, let's work together. When you are trying to talk to the power brokers, you can't say let's work together. When you talk to CEOs, when you, when you talk to people who actually control the money, you can't say let's work together. But when yeah, you're dealing with depression, that. that's when we work together. Yeah. I mean, working together, what, is, what do you mean by that anyway? I mean, we have to – and that's what's even frustrating about figuring out, you know, how do we move forward where, you know, I'm like, let's work together. But what does that really look like? Uh, that's why, you know – so many people today are like, allies, we need to do better. Well, first, you need to stop calling yourself an ally. And you need to take on the, these problems as your own and mm-hmm. not as someone else's problems. Um, there's just It's a mess. It's a mess. We are a mess. <laughs> I mean, that allyship thing has been bothering me for quite some time because I think white people don't always realize that they lose from racism as well. Absolutely. They give up a degree of their humanity in order to be white. They degree uh, uh, the ability to see oppression and wrongness because they have the shield. And and that takes away from their experience as human beings. And it separates us from them as well. And the idea that, like, they're just allies is condescending. It's absolutely condescending. And it makes them... I think it gives them a sense of self-worth and it makes them feel like they're actually doing something good, like that they deserve a cookie for it. That's the one of the biggest things that drives me just batshit about this idea of allyship. It's like, oh, look at me being a good person and performing. And then I'm going to go home to my great life and you're going to continue to deal with racism. And I'm going to pretend that I'm not complicit in this entire racist system. It's, uh, it's uh, today is... You caught me on a good day for anger. (laughs) 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 There's a lot of it just bubbling under the surface. And I'm trying to be like hopeful and I'm trying so hard, but there's some anger here too. So 
Stephen M. Silberstein is a board member of the nonprofit corporation National Popular Vote, whose purpose is to implement a nationwide popular election of the President of the United States. In other words, get rid of the Electoral College, or at least redefine it. Previously, Mr. Silberstein was the founder and president of Innovative Interfaces, Inc., the world's leading supplier of computer software for college and city libraries. We are delighted to have him join us today. Welcome, Stephen Silverstein. A real pleasure to be on the air with you. Let me make a small correction. We are not in favor of eliminating the Electoral College. We want to keep the Electoral College. We just want to change the rules under which it operates so that it ends up choosing as president of the United States the person who received the most votes in the entire country, that is, in all 50 states. Good to have you on the show, Steve. This is Ralph Nader. We're going to get into that in some detail. But, listeners, you're in for a real treat today because what you're seeing is a citizen movement of significant consequence in the way we elect our president and one that has left-right support, one that has far fewer than 1% of the voters involved in the various states. And the purpose of it, basically, is to recognize that the Constitution leaves it up to the states to decide the rules of the elections. And this effort by national popular vote is a interstate compact between states. And when the states enter it, and we'll get into the names of the states in a moment, they agree to throw their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the nationwide popular vote. So we will never have again this anomaly that is the laughingstock of the world, where in a free democratic society, the person who comes in second in the popular vote wins the presidency because of the winner-take-all present situation with the electoral votes. Most people find it almost amazing to hear this statement. No one in the United States has ever voted for a presidential candidate. We vote for electors in each state who, in turn, vote for the candidate. What Steve Silberstein and his colleagues have done already is they've gotten through 11 jurisdictions, that is, 11 states possessing 165 electoral votes, or 61% of the 270 electoral votes necessary to activate this national popular vote bill. They've gotten through states that, in effect, have said anybody who wins the popular vote in the United States for the presidency of the United States will get our electoral votes. And so I want to welcome Steve Silberstein, who very quietly has been a major factor in one state after another passing this legislation. And what really impressed me, Steve, is how it doesn't break down red state, blue state. To be sure, we have California and New York having joined this interstate compact. But in Oklahoma, you had a bipartisan 28 to 18 vote in the Oklahoma Senate. I mean, that is really doing something in an overwhelmingly Republican state. Why don't you explain to the public the kind of problem in American history and how many times in American history the person who came in second became president, the kind of problem that you are trying to remedy with the national popular vote, and give the website anytime you want. It's the nationalpopularvote.com for any of you who want to join this citizen effort. Yeah, thank you, Ralph. So it's happened four times in our history that the loser of the popular vote has been awarded the office of the presidency the most recent time being in the year 2000. 
And every year there is speculation that this could happen again, and it will happen again. So that's one of the things that is wrong with the way the Electoral College is presently implemented. It's not in the Constitution the way that it's implemented. The other problem is that the presidential election is decided in these so-called battleground states or swing states, of which there are very few, and in each election there are less and less of them. The most recent decade or two, it's been Ohio and Florida. So the rest of the country is really ignored in the presidential campaign. The candidates don't come to the other states. They don't spend money. They're not really that interested in the issues in the other states. So basically, 80% of the country is just irrelevant in the presidential election. Everything boils down to how the candidates do in these four or five so-called battleground states. So that results in a complete distortion of the president's attention and the candidates' attention and in how the policies are implemented after they are elected. The system that we have is based on the idea that each state legislature has total power, according to the Constitution, to decide how that state's votes are to be awarded in the Electoral College. Most states use this so-called winner-take-all rule, which means that the state gives all its votes to whoever won that state. Now, that rule is a piece of state legislation, and it's just a coincidence that most of the states use that. As we sit here today, two states do not use that rule. They use a rule where they award the electoral votes congressional district by congressional district. That's the states of Maine and Nebraska. The state of Massachusetts in its 200-year history has changed the way it decides how to award its electoral votes more than a dozen times. So what we're asking is for the state to pass a law that says it will give all its electoral votes to whoever won the most votes in the country, not the person who won that state. And when a group of states that together have half the votes in the Electoral College pass this law, then the law takes effect. And then from that point on, the president will be the person who got the most votes in the country because at least half the states, uh, that's half the electoral votes, will go to that person because of that law. So, so far, 11 states with 165 electoral college votes have passed that law. Which ones, Steve, for our listeners? Which ones? Uh, the states are all over the country. Uh, the very first state to pass the law was Maryland, and Governor Martin O'Malley signed that law. Of course, he's now a candidate for president. New Jersey has passed it, Massachusetts has passed it, Rhode Island has passed it, New York has passed it, California has passed it, the state of Washington has passed it, as has the uh, city of Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, which itself has three electoral votes. So those are some of the states who have passed it. Hawaii and, and Illinois, right? Hawaii has passed it, Illinois has passed it, yes. And in order to pass a piece of legislation, of course, you have to pass both bodies, that is the Senate and the Assembly in each state, and then, of course, the governor has to sign it. We've gotten both houses in these 11 states to pass it and the governor to sign it. However, of course, in order to get this done, sometimes we pass just one body, and we have passed one body. As you mentioned, we passed the Senate in Oklahoma. We have yet to pass the Assembly, but we will. we're working on that. So in total, of 34 legislative bodies in 21 states have passed it. If we got the other body in all these 21 states to pass it, then we'd be done. We'd have a group of states that together have 270 electoral college votes 
and it would be implemented. So we're working Steve, real hard in a whole bunch of states to you, to get them to pass it. We get nine or ten or eleven or so more. We'll reach the 270 vote threshold, and this will take place. And we will have a presidential campaign where the candidates campaign all over the country instead of just the very few states that they campaign in right now. Yeah, listeners may want to know what they already realize is that if you're in most parts of the country, you never see a presidential nominee for any of the two major parties. For example, the Republican nominee spends virtually no time in California other than to raise funds, no time in Massachusetts, no time in New York, and the Democratic candidate doesn't spend any time in many states in the South or Texas because they've given up. It's a winner-take-all system. And I have statistics here, Ralph. So, for example, in the last election, the 2012 election, in the state of Ohio, there were 73 visits by presidential candidates, okay, in the states of Indiana, South Carolina, Mississippi, Maine, Washington, Delaware, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, there were zero. So that's how stunning. it works. Yeah, it's really stunning. It's sort of disrespectful, too. The, the system induces disrespect of a majority of the voters who are, in effect, excluded from these campaigns because they never see the candidates, they can't rally, they can't ask the candidates questions or anything. Steve, explain, in addition to four presidential campaigns in American history where the loser of the popular vote becomes president, explain how close it came in both Ohio in 2004 and in 2012 in those two races. Yeah, so 2004 is an interesting race because George W. Bush won the national popular vote by about 3 million votes. However, he came within 50,000 votes of losing Ohio. And if he'd lost Ohio, then John Kerry would have been president, even though George W. Bush got 3 million more votes. So just razor-thin margins in one particular state. And, of course, we had that in Florida in 2000. Flip the whole election when the popular vote is in the other direction. In 2012, this is even more amazing. Yes. So in 2012, we had basically the same situation, except in that case, of course, Obama won the popular vote by about 5 million votes, but a few thousand votes shifted in a couple of these so-called battleground states would have given the election to Romney. The national popular vote is designed, in Steve's words, to ensure, quote, that every vote in every state will matter in every presidential election. I have a question, Mr. Silverstein, just for our listeners and for me, for that matter. Can you give us a little history? Why was the Electoral College Institute in the first place and why are those reasons no longer relevant? Well, the electoral, the Constitutional Convention spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to elect the president. They didn't want the Congress to do it because they thought it would give too much power to the Congress. They finally decided that what they would, they would just kick the can down the road and they would ask the state legislators to do it. And that's what the electoral college is. They ask the state legislatures to decide how the president would be elected. You what was the they, reasoning behind that? Well, it seemed like the, you know, the way to keep the, they didn't want the Congress to do it. So who else was going to do it? In those days, of course, the, uh, the most populous state in the country was Virginia. However, one of the problems was that very few people in Virginia voted because most of the people 
in Virginia were African Americans who were enslaved. So if they just did a popular vote across the country, Virginia, the most populous and prosperous state in the country, would have very few people voting. So they wanted to give Virginia power that they thought it deserved. And of course, most of our presidents for the first 30, 40 years came from came from Virginia. And the way they did that is they made the state of Virginia have a lot of weight by counting the African-Americans in figuring out the weight of the state. They actually diminished them a little bit by counting each one as three-fifths of the person and weighted Virginia in the Electoral College in that manner so that the few voters in Virginia would have a tremendous amount of power. So that's how the Electoral College came about basically delegating to the states and of course the states could decide how they wanted to do it. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a moment to give my thoughts on supporting progressive organizations and independent media outlets at this particular moment in time. I don't think that I'm going to be the first person you're hearing from saying that at this desperate hour, we need to stay strong and keep moving forward, and we need your financial support uh, to do that. That's true for me. It's true for all of my progressive media colleagues. It's true for every progressive political organization that you have an affinity for. But the other thing I wanted to tell you is that we're not just asking for more money because we need to fight harder. We don't just need support now so we can keep going. Uh, What I want you to keep in mind is that a lot of people's lives are about to be dramatically disrupted. And for a lot of incredibly legitimate reasons, people are going to become unable to support shows like this, you know, all of my friends in a similar situation, and all the progressive organizations that are near and dear to you. So what I'm asking is that if you find yourself in a position where you actually can help, I'm not just asking you to help now because we need it. I'm asking you to step up and help fill the space that is left by those who are being pushed into a position where they can no longer help. So a show like this one runs primarily on donations of five or ten bucks a month, and a lot of people have been canceling in the last few days, and it's not because they think, I don't need to listen to Best of the Left anymore. It's no longer important. (laughs) It's because they are going through something, that something has happened to them, or they fear that it will, and they need to protect what they can. So if you are not in that position, then now is absolutely the time to step up and fill that gap. If you want to support this show, I do bonus content that I hope is useful and interesting to people, and you can get all of that information at the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks for your support. as a whole is not going to elect the next president. That was Republican Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin um, saying the nation as a whole is not going to elect the next president. Twelve states are. 
Well, according to The Hill, the 2016 election will come down to the same 11 states that decided the most recent presidential contest. Meanwhile, two-thirds of the general election campaign events in the 2016 presidential race were held in just six states. Well, we turn now to the campaign for electoral reform. On Monday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed legislation that recommits New York to the National Popular Vote Compact, uh, past its 2018 expiration date. Under the compact, states across the country have pledged to award their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the nationwide popular vote. If enough states sign on, it would guarantee the presidency goes to the candidate who wins the most votes across the country. It would prevent scenarios like what happened in 2000, when Al Gore won the popular vote but still lost the election to George W. Bush. In 2014, Republican New York State Senator Joseph Griffo spoke about why he co-sponsored the bill. Potential presidential candidates concentrate more than two-thirds of their advertising budget and two-thirds of their campaign stops in just five states. Almost 100 percent of their message is seen in approximately 16 battleground states. New York has 19.5 million people, but were routinely ignored by campaigns. I want to empower people. I want to make New York State relevant in a national campaign again. I want democracy that creates excitement in people, not apathy. Joining the National Popular Vote Compact creates that opportunity. It leverages the combined power of the states in a compact to say, no longer can you take us for granted. No longer can you effectively disenfranchise millions of Americans by ignoring us. No longer can you assume that you have our vote. The compact could transform the way we elect the president of the United States, guaranteeing the presidency to the candidate who receives the most popular votes in the United States. Currently, 11 states have joined the compact through legislation, making up 165 of the required 270 electoral votes for the compact to go into effect. Meanwhile, other electoral reform efforts are underway. Uh, today, voters in Maine will consider an initiative that would allow them to rank their favorite candidates in future elections. This is part of an ad released by the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting, which is urging people to vote yes on question five. Politicians can get elected with less than 40 percent of the vote. There's actually something we can do right now that would help make things better. Ranked Choice Voting. Ranked Choice Voting gives you the power to rank as many or as few candidates as you like, from your first choice to your second choice to your third choice and so on. If there are more than two candidates running and no candidate wins a majority when the first choices are counted, the candidate with the fewest first choice rankings is eliminated. And voters who like that candidate best now have their vote instantly counted for the candidate they ranked as their second choice. This process is repeated until one candidate reaches a majority and wins. For more, we go to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Rob Ritchie, co-founder and executive director of the Electoral Reform Group Fair Vote, co-author of Every Vote Equal, a state-based plan for electing the president by national popular vote, also co-author of Reflecting All of Us, the case for proportional representation. Okay, Rob, explain. Well, thank you, Amy. Uh, great to be on the program on Election Day, which is, of course, an exciting one for all of us. Um, and it's particularly exciting for us in a couple of ways. Um, glad you brought up the main measure for ranked choice voting. Um, it is, I think, well positioned to win today. And what it would mean in Maine in 2018 is that voters in a field where they have more than two choices could do both elect vote for whom they really like while also making sure their vote uh, does the most it can to help defeat the candidate they most dislike. And that's what you are able to do by just ranking candidates in order of choice. 
Um, it's been a great effort um, uh, pushed there and, uh, you know, a, a, a remarkable grassroots effort where they got more than half the signatures they needed in a single day back in 2014. Uh, uh, house parties and events all over the state, and people seem to like it. And I think it's something that the whole whole country can uh, move to in the coming years. Then, of course, we have the Electoral College system, um, and thanks for the introduction on that one as well, which just sort of underscores how we all should vote today, but the candidates and the campaigns only really care if you do in those handful of states. And uh, um, one way to think about that is Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine have done, since their conventions, almost 60 percent of their events in three states. You know, so we're talking about such a narrow way of, of looking at the whole country, and it's because of the rules we have that we can change with a national popular vote plan. So explain what those states are, even where Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were yesterday, from Pennsylvania to Michigan to Florida. Uh, of course, Ohio is key here as well, Virginia, where uh, Tim Kaine, I think, was among the first to vote this morning before 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Well, it's it's a familiar list. Um, uh, it, it, for anyone who's followed campaigns the last few cycles, these are the states that always matter, right? And uh, and then most of us live in states where we should vote, and there's lots of things that may matter in those states, but the presidential vote is, 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 is a foregone conclusion. Um, but Clinton, uh, her, her three big states were uh, Florida, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. So Ohio was fourth. If you add in that, that's almost up to uh, gets at about three quarters of her campaign events in just those four states. Um, and she only did uh, she and Tim Kaine only did three campaign events outside of the 11 states that uh, were clearly marked battlegrounds based on the 2012 election. So what would happen if there weren't an electoral college? Well, this is one thing. Just the National Popular Vote Plan keeps the Electoral College. It just transforms what it does so a popular vote uh, determines the presidency, the, the most votes in all 50 states in D.C. Um, and what that would mean is, uh, for the individual, is that you could do something about the presidential election no matter where you lived, right? You could knock on doors where you live. You could talk to your neighbors and feel that you're really part of the national election. And on the night of the election, they'd be adding up those votes. We might be interested in what the votes are in different states, but the real totals that matter, matter would be the votes uh, for the whole country when uh, they're added up and the one with the most votes would win. Um, and uh, that would mean that the candidates would have a whole different incentive to, to work with uh, uh, allies in all states. Uh, you know, state parties would matter everywhere. Um, and we have right now these sort of dead zones where uh, it's just one party fiefdoms, um, and I think the red and blue America is, is, is exaggerated by the fact that in most of the country, uh, it's not a two-party system. It's really just a one-party dominance. We just heard clips today from Jay Smooth with his morning after reflections. Van Jones spoke out on election night about the need to include race in the conversation. Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine talked about taking the time to mourn, but also rallying to resist and organize. Throwing Shade reminded us that it's important to feel the feelings we're having right now before getting back to work. 
Dave Zirin on Edge of Sports spoke of the importance of self-care to give us the strength to go forward. Politically Reactive assured us that anger is the appropriate response. And finally, on both the Ralph Nader Radio Hour and Democracy Now!, there were discussions and successive clips about our broken electoral college system and what we can do to fix it. More on that in a moment. But first, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. I had a, have a student in my office who is 20 years old or so, student athlete, doing pretty well in my class. And uh, he's nearly trembling because uh, he's here semi-legally and uh, he's in the system, but he has to reply for uh, work visa or every two years now. And he's a dreamer. And Donald Trump ran on a campaign to throw him out of the country. And, he won. and you know... I have a Muslim student who's scared that she's going to be put on a watch list. And I listened to the election episode, and I just wonder, there are a myriad of forces at work that led to this. But I, I just wonder how much of it, you know, we weren't excited about a corporatist candidate, but how much of it is our fault? I mean, if you think about it, you know, your election episode, which I couldn't really listen to, though, was largely focused on how we need to fight against Hillary and and not even celebrating the fact that we may have had the first woman president. And you know, that lacklusterness got us Trump. Maybe there was no way to be more excited about Hillary. Maybe this was an inevitable conclusion, but... <sighs> Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. It's been a little while since I called in. It's Wednesday morning. I'm mad as hell and sick to my stomach all in the same breath. And I'm going to tell you, um, we need to get rid of this liberal bubble that a lot of us liberals like to live in. Um, certain people were warning and screaming about how serious this election was early on, even all the way to the end. But if you look at the numbers, look at the third-party candidates. Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, they didn't cause this election to go in Trump's uh, victory. Clinton's failure, make no bones about this, liberals. Clinton's failures were Clinton's failures, hers and hers alone. Um, you could say James Comey and the FBI threw the wrench in the last minute and screwed her over. Guys, if we had picked a better candidate like Bernie, we wouldn't be in this mess on Wednesday morning. That being said, when we knew, and we all knew, that Bernie was getting the shaft and the raw deal, we should have been a lot more vocal and militant in our stance against the Clinton campaign. When Sanders finally conceded to Clinton, that's what Sanders wanted to do. He's towing a party line, whatever. I understand you want to play the politics. But I'm going to tell you right now, advancing her forward as our candidate and getting bit in the ass this morning is a prime example of what putting out secondary uh, choices and voting for the lesser of two evils gets us. You know, I'm mad as hell, Jay. 
and it just makes me infuriatingly mad when people talk about, oh, well, you know, if, if Clinton won, if Clinton won, if Clinton won, yeah, if Clinton won, things would be different, they would still suck. And on top of it, she was such a lackluster character of a person, anyone in their right mind should have known better than to put her up against anyone you pull off of a bus stop, let alone this guy, this little orange troll who's tapping into the fears and hate of everyone who's disenfranchised and disheartened with the system as it is. Anyway, Jay, keep up the show. Well, shit. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Dave Dunn in Olympia, Washington. It's Wednesday morning, still observing the election results. This was my daughter's first presidential election, and <laughs> this morning was literally having panic attack. What do we do? What do we do? What are we going to do? And, you know, as the responsible adult, for whatever that's worth, I, I, at a very fundamental level, I don't know. But this is what I said, and so I thought I'd share. So, like any other true disaster, whether I got a you know a terminal cancer diagnosis or we had the big earthquake that Washington's expecting, there's basic things you do to respond in a crisis, right? The first one is self-care. You take care of yourself. You get out of bed, you shower, you brush your teeth, you take care of yourself. If there's medication that you need on a daily regime, whether that's for high blood pressure or for uh, mental health, make sure to take that. Don't skip those things. They're very important. You need to pull together with your family. And whether that's, you know, your family of birth or your family of choice, that's all good. But you need relationships. And we're going to need those relationships in the future if we're ever going to fight back from this. Related to that is the idea of doing something for someone else. It is one of the best ways to preserve your own mental health, and it's one of the best ways to build those social networks that we need. So doing something, some form of service, you know, today, tomorrow, whatever that means to you, do it, it will help. Related to the idea of pulling together a family is don't disintegrate. Don't start pointing fingers or blaming. This was not the fault of Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or even the Bernie and Bus people. At a very fundamental level, this happened because the Republican Party forwarded a candidate that was more appealing to the American people than the Democratic Party forwarded. Now that says some really sobering things about both the Democrats Republicans and about the American people, but we need to have accurate information in order to move forward. So that's my last point is good intelligence. And with that is an admonition not to uh, engage in hyperbole overblow the situation. I mean, this is horrifying and bad. But it's not, you know, scare quotes, the end of the world. Um, the world hasn't ended. We're still here. We can fight back from this. Um, it's not, you know, pending nuclear annihilation. Now, I, I totally believe that Donald Trump can probably will drop a nuclear weapon on 
I don't know, North Korea, some someplace on the planet. That's going to have repercussions. There could be responses. I, I, I can, without much difficulty, I can imagine a future where large or maybe small, but fractions of the planet become uninhabited, uninhabitable nuclear wastelands. But even that is not the end. We can come back from that. We can rebuild. We can fight to prevent that. We can fight back from that situation. Defeatist, absolutist statements like this is the end, the United States is over, aren't true on a very fundamental level and aren't helpful. So for what it's worth, those are my thoughts on this very depressing morning. Try and stay awesome, Jay. Thank you for all you do. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, I I thought I would tell you how my election night and, and the day after went... This is absolutely true. I I spent uh, the day after the election watching episodes of Black Mirror and Stranger Things on Netflix to sort of get a glimpse of a world slightly less surreal than the real world. Uh, if, If you're familiar with either of those shows, I think you know the point I'm making. As for election night itself, uh, I had all you know all of the same feelings many of you had: the sickness in the stomach, the anger, the frustration, the despair. All of it, I'm right there with you. Uh, but I, I will tell you something that uh, I, I, you know, I had a very, very real uh, realization during election night, and. I really appreciated the clip that I played today from uh, Politically Reactive. They were the ones talking about uh, how, you know, their their frustration with the racial divide, you know, people saying, oh, you, know, you can't be too mad at white people and uh, all of that. And they got very mad at that, <laughs> naturally. And I appreciated that because I had that feeling during the election. I, I, or I had a feeling very much related to that. I'll tell you about it. So, like I said, I had all those same horrible feelings that that most of us had that night. And then I sort of had to sit back and realize, like, I could be feeling worse. You know, what what is happening right now that's making me feel a little bit distanced from these results? You know, I'm not in fear for my life. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how this is going to impact me directly right away. And so it didn't take long, but like I, once I realized what I was feeling and I took a step back, I, I understood that it was just me recognizing my own privilege. And this is so obviously this is not a new feeling for me. I've been talking about all of the privileges that I have and that so many people have uh, for a long time now, my maleness and straightness and whiteness and so forth. And the election night just crystallized the, those things in a way that there had been no opportunity for me to feel it in such a profound and dramatic way. Uh, it, it made it so much more real. And, and what I realized that night, and then has only been more and more confirmed as the days have gone on, that what we have been referring to as privilege in the last uh, few years in Trump's America, privilege is now like 
a fucking superpower. I don't know if you've seen, but a rash of hate crimes started being reported immediately after the results came in. Like, there are people roaming the streets, basically looking for people to fuck with, uh, looking for people to say, you know, it's not your America anymore, get the fuck out, or, again, let your imagination run wild. Uh, That is the kind of fear and intimidation and threats of violence that people are living under now because of who they are, because of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, and so forth. And so being white and male and straight in Trump's America is a superpower. It lets you walk through the streets unaccosted. And so what I want to ask to those of you who experience any degree of these kinds of privileges that people like me experience is that it is absolutely imperative that you recognize this dramatic shift. I mean, privilege existed before. Now, It is on hyperdrive. Now, it is not privilege. It is a superpower. And so I want you to ask yourself what you are going to do with that superpower in Trump's America. And finally today, as I said, I just want to talk a little bit more about the campaign for the national popular vote. This campaign has been going on for at least a decade. I heard of it at least a decade ago. I was very encouraged by it at the time. I thought, oh, great. Like, They will get that all sorted out, and we won't have another 2000 election again. Won't that be great? And they just have been making slow progress ever since, and they didn't quite get the job done in time to avert what I think many consider to be the greatest electoral disaster that any of us will experience in our lifetimes. So... Clearly now is the time. Uh, The campaign is more than halfway to their goal. Um, Right now, 11 states constituting 165 electoral votes have already signed on to the interstate compact that you heard described within the clips of the show. And so we only need 105 more electoral votes, you know, states uh, totaling up to 105 electoral votes to sign on. And there are already uh, states constituting, I want to say, 90, uh, 96 electoral votes have already taken it under consideration and passed the bill in one of their two chambers. So this is the type of thing, like this organization has had a skeleton crew. I don't know how they've been organizing. I don't know how they've been lobbying uh, these state legislators, but they have gotten more than halfway to their goal in about 10 years with a skeleton crew. If a a heroic cavalry of citizen lobbyists were to ride to the rescue, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever this campaign could be won within the next two years in time for the beginning of the next presidential election cycle when cam you know the candidates start campaigning and it it doesn't just change the way the votes are tallied it changes the way elections are run it changes the way the candidates campaign so i just cannot stress enough and, and i'm going to be coming back to this topic a lot more often uh, in in the coming weeks 
I cannot stress enough how much I think you should support this organization. Go to nationalpopularvote.com. What you can do immediately is either donate to them or uh, use their form to find your, not your national level legislators, but your state representatives and state senators, wherever you are. Obviously, their website also has a list of states that shows what the progress is. So you can see, has your state already signed on? Has your state already made some progress and you can help push it over the line? Uh, or has your state made no progress at all? And you can just go and make appointments with every state legislature, uh, in, in, in your state and give them this bill and tell them to consider it. As was said in the show, uh, this has massive bipartisan support. Uh, most recently, it has been uh, passed in, you know, at least in one house of places like Arizona and Oklahoma. So this is not just about fixing the election to make it actually democratic the way we vote. It's about changing the way the elections are run. And so these states that are so often ignored by the candidates hate that. So even if there's a state like Oklahoma that's full of Republicans and they would, you know, generally prefer that a Republican win the White House, they would much rather have the president, uh, you know, pre presidential candidates care about the opinions of their voters and campaign in their state than to focus all of the energy on the so-called swing states because of this fucked up system we have. So even deeply, deeply Republican states are willing to pass this law. So don't feel discouraged at all. No matter where you live, you can absolutely have an impact on this. So if you are familiar with this show, you are probably familiar with uh, the Wolfpack campaign. If you're familiar with the Wolfpack campaign, you know that it is essentially the same campaign. It's the same uh, set of strategies, the same idea. Uh, laws being passed at the state level with the urging of state-level citizen lobbyists. They are having success uh, campaigning for a constitutional amendment to be called for at the state level, and this campaign is even older and is already further toward success. And at this particular moment, having just uh, lost the second election in 16 years, and I don't, I don't just mean Democrats lost, I mean democracy lost uh, the second election in 16 years because of this antiquated system, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that we can rally hundreds, if not thousands of people to become citizen lobbyists and engage with their own state representatives and senators and get this bill passed in enough states to make it the new law of the land and eliminate the effects of the Electoral College. So if you are interested in that, if you're interested in being part of a movement that can actually win a campaign very soon a campaign that has nothing to do with the federal government whatsoever, which means we have more hope of achieving this than any other policy uh, proposals we may have in the next four years, then get involved right now. Again, go to nationalpopularvote.com. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, 
itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past